It's the Persistent and Nasty Podcast at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe 2023 series. The episodes will be released at various different times, so make sure that you have subscribed so you get notified when a new episode has dropped. We have some amazing guests coming up for you and I know that you won't want to miss them. They will be everything from circus performers to theatre makers to singers to spoken word poets and we can't wait to share all of them with you. Remember, if you are taking part in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe or you are just going for a visit, remember your rain jacket, your comfy shoes and a pair of shorts because you never know the weather that you're going to get in Edinburgh. But what you are guaranteed is some incredible pieces of theatre. Enjoy the episode and remember... Stay nasty. Hello you gorgeous lot and welcome to another episode of the Persistent Nasty Podcast Edinburgh Festival Fringe Series 2023. I hope that you're all doing really well looking after yourselves and being kind to you and each other. Today I'm joined by Ashley Elizabeth Lolo talking about her new show Blueprints. All the details for Blueprints are in the show notes of today's episode. We discuss Ashley's process, we discuss teaching and how important that is as a creative and how it actually is really beneficial to your practice. Uh, Ashley talks about uh, the joys of black love and how we need to see that much more on our stages and our screens and we just have an overall wonderful conversation and I know that you're all going to really love and enjoy it. Um, Remember to like, download, subscribe and review the episode. It really does make a huge difference and gets all of our guests heard and listened to by as many people as possible. Remember, if you wish to support us, you can become a persistent pal or a nasty hero. All of the details for that are again in the show notes of today's episode or you can head over to our website www.persistentandnasty.co.uk and you'll find all the details there. You'll also find all the details of how you can get involved with the blog and when we reopen submissions for the festival podcasts along with our newsletter and all the details on the coffee morning. Remember to follow us on all social media, Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty, send us an email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com and you can find that on the website as well which is www.persistentandnasty.co.uk. You can follow Louise and I on all social media, Louise is at Ms Louise Oliver on both Instagram and Twitter and I am at Elaine.stirrit on Instagram and threads and Elaine at Elaine.stirrit on Twitter. Oh for today's episode I don't know lots of water I think Mm, we're looking at prepping for the festival festival should be starting uh should be is starting very soon so we need to make sure we're nice and hydrated uh maybe a little glass of wine if it's warm where you are maybe you're having a lovely rosy uh beer coffee hot chocolate or you know you can always just have a good old cup of tea sit back relax and enjoy computers putting things on me there's no more room in the hard drive (laughs) 
delete, delete. Uh, anyway, Ashley, Elizabeth, Lolo, welcome to the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Hello, thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to be here and it's going to be a good hour. It's going to be, really- it's going to be a great hour. I'm very excited. Um, so Ashley, for our listeners, um, well, actually, first of all, we are going to be talking about um, Ashley's show, which will be on at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe 2023, because Ashley is part of our Fringe series, um, which is very exciting. And um, oh my goodness, we've got some amazing people already, and I'm so happy that we get to chat to you. Um, but before we kind of talk about your show, uh, let's have the potted history of you. How did you start? Like, what brought you to this industry of ours? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone chooses the arts as such. It kind of chooses them. I feel like it's a cliche, but I'm going to go with it anyway. But it's so <laughs> true, because who would choose this? I mean, I do love the arts, but by God, they could definitely pay us more. Like, just I mean, Absolutely. I mean, I love it too. But like, really, if, if people said to you, this is how it's going to go still choosing and unfortunately we'd all go yes still choosing (laughs) so I started out as a poet originally um so I'm from Birmingham so I basically did the young poetry laureate competition I got to second place and I was like okay I really enjoy this um I did English at university really enjoyed it there but didn't enjoy the theory side of stuff so much but I thought okay let's see where this leads um and then that led to me going to India for three months and I wrote a poem out there about things that I was seeing in the rural um communities in India and then that got commissioned by my university when I got back and that led on to me getting commissioned for my first ever play that's how it all started and that was in conjunction with Birmingham Rep Theatre the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery Birmingham University, Birmingham City University and Oxford University and that's how it all got started. So once again I did not choose this industry, I was going to go into the journalism route, I was going to write magazine articles and I thought that was it and then literally I was taken on a different path and I'm so glad that it happened because I love being an artist but I definitely did not choose it. (laughs) You're like I did not choose this. So has writing always been a thing for you like even as a child and I'll ask that first one. I was, I'm getting too ahead of myself. I was getting so excited there. Pull yourself back, Elaine. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I've been writing since the age of 13. Um, I was writing when I was in school. There was a competition that was run by Writing West Midlands, and it was to publish a poem about something you were passionate about. So I wrote a poem that got published, and I thought, okay, this is amazing. But once again, I also didn't see many people around me that were writers and also that were artists as well um so whilst I knew that it was a job I also didn't think that someone like me could go into it um and also that really led on all the way up until I was 21 to be quite frank I mean I was still writing things and I was still performing but I just didn't see it as a viable career path and I think after the first commission I think the people that were mentoring me at the time, um, there was a guy called Dr. Rajinder Dudra. He was kind of mentoring me about professionalism as an artist and how to kind of network with people. And that was amazing. And actually, I owe a lot of my development to him. Daniel Bailey, who was at the Rep, he's now at the Bush. He was a massive, massive um, kind of inspiration to me at the time as well. And it's just all these amazing creatives just really guided me along the way. And I realized that, oh, actually, I can make a career out of this. This is possible. And then I think, Um, along my career as well, I ended up doing the Foundry program at the Rep, which is based on a playwriting program. 
And that actually led to me working in participation and working with like schools and young people. I was like, oh, okay, so I can merge this with this love as well. This is perfect. And that's how it all kind of came into existence, really. Just being able to experiment with a theatre company, really work out what my passions are, merge poetry, playwriting, work with young people and being a drama practitioner. And that's how I kind of came to be who I am today. So, yeah. I love it all. I love it. Um, the couple of things I want to kind of pick up on, like when you said, you know, you didn't know that this was something for someone like you, I'd love you to kind of kind of touch more on that if you're comfortable. Yeah, I mean, whilst I didn't grow up in a household that my mom was very, very like, yeah, she was free when it came to my career. She said, you can do whatever you want. That's absolutely fine. But I also think around me, a lot of my friends are not artists in the sense of the ones I went to school with, the ones I went to college with. Um, my best friend is a musician, which is amazing, but literally that is it. Um, and also as well, I thought a lot of people that what you know we grew up with, they went into law, they went into being a doctor, they went into all the traditional kind of um, industries. Um, but at the same time, I just didn't see people like me, especially from Birmingham as well. I just didn't see it as such. And I'm not saying that didn't exist, by the way. I just wasn't aware of them. And that was obviously because of, like at the time was coming up, social media was just about starting to kick off. Not really, but still kind of bubbling away under the surface. Um, so they were there, but I just didn't know. Um, but also as well, even though, and it's, it's funny how you then pick up on things that society is teaching you like, you know, bit by bit. I always thought in the back of my mind, yeah, artists, it's a plaything, really. Like you can mess around with it. You can have some fun, but it's not going to pay the bills. It's not going to put food on the table. And I think actually being able to realise that you can make a living out of being an artist. That's amazing. Now, am I going to be on the same money as Bill Gates? Never. Like it's <laughs> never going to happen. And that's OK. I'm fine with that. But I think it. I think I really want to promote. And it's what I tell a lot of young people that I work with as well. I can afford to move out. I can afford to, you know, pay my bills. Like it's possible, but you know what I mean? It's just being, it's just having the knowledge that it's okay to do that. And actually a lot of people are doing it, but probably just not promoting it as much as the people that are, you know, on thousands and millions of pounds. It's not going to be that. But at the same time, I am still making a living and, you know, I'm okay with that, which is great. Yeah, I think that's so important, isn't it? Because I think there's this, um, idea especially for younger people um and social media probably plays into that of that idea of like fame and the money that you can get from it all and it's not always going to play out that way yeah it's yeah a thousand percent and I also think as well like you've got to really know why you're doing this mm-hmm. and I think yeah. I think blueprints has actually taught me that quite heavily that it's not about mainstream success for me and I always you know in the back of your mind as an artist think okay maybe one day I might be on the level of you know Phoebe Waller-Bridge and all that sort of stuff you you do aspire for it you know deep down of but course I- you do because we've all got egos like anybody that says that we don't you're lying to yourself <laughs> <laughs> that's it and as an artist you do want to be recognized in a way but I think after Blueprints and seeing the communities that it touched after the Pleasance run in London I was like oh Actually, it's about the community. That's what I care about. That's who I want to impact. And I know that actually all of the pieces that I've written so far have had the community at heart. And actually, I think that is the main kind of driving force for me. And I think I'm so glad I learned that along this process, because you can get caught up in the whole external validation chase and, you know, wanting people to kind of give you the the five, six star ratings, if it even existed, you want that. But actually, that's not really what matters. And I think that's something I've definitely learned along this process as well. 
Mm, yeah, it's it is so true. Like I do, and you talked about the fact that you teach as well, and I teach as well. Um, and I think it's really important as creatives that we do that. I think that kind of old adage of those who can't do teach really like infuriates me because actually it's you have to understand and be able to do what you're teaching otherwise you can teach it (laughs) that's it and I also think as well my practice is I will practice then teach so I can only teach as well as working as an artist do you know what I mean and then yes And then I can go into the communities and teach as much as I can. But to me, the two go hand in hand and I don't want them to ever be separated. Um, and actually as well, I think, because one thing I love about working with young people, they will not lie to you. If they don't think it's good, they will tell you. And that to me <laughs> as how, is how I've grown as an artist. When I've worked with young people at the Birmingham Hippodrome where I work full time or at the rep where I used to work, if a show wasn't good or if you presented something back that was based on their ideas and it didn't represent them they will tell you and that to me is how you grow actually the the feedback that is good and positive that's amazing but actually you grow in the the bits that are more challenging the bits that don't sit quite well in the rehearsal room it doesn't sound right in you know the young people's mouths that's that's how it works and actually then also when you're then teaching playwriting techniques that you thought worked and actually you thought what's oh, in principle actually when you put it into practice you realize oh actually this doesn't suit this generation and actually there's so many things that we need to kind of dissect in terms of gender in terms of sexuality in terms of identity and it's like oh this generation is definitely challenging it and there's going to be a lot of things that are going to make us feel uncomfortable and that's fine but it's worth kind of taking you know being part of the process so yeah <laughs> I really love that you brought that up because <clears throat> There has been such a shift over the last couple of years with this generation in particular, where they are challenging things that maybe some of us who have been trying to shift and change, and it's not going as quickly as we would like, um, but, you know, also the things that we kind of just accepted when we were younger, because it was that kind of structure was in place of, oh, well, they must know better, Mm-hmm. rather than going yeah but that's not how it is now and I really love that you've brought that up and how we then dissect it but also as practitioners and as um kind of mentors and teachers and just artists in general if we're not challenging ourselves or being challenged then we're not doing our jobs I don't think absolutely absolutely and I think that is <laughs> there was a young person I'll never forget this young person as long as I live and it was on the National Theatre's New Views scheme and they were basically creating this character and they didn't assign a gender to the character and immediately I went into my dramaturgical training I was like oh but maybe this gender this person might have this gender there might be this and they were like no they don't have this gender and this is how it is and I was like oh my god this goes against everything I was taught and I literally said to them I'm going to be right back. And I spoke to everyone in the industry and I was like, listen, this, this kid is going places. And I said, we need to talk about this topic and literally just sparked a conversation because actually, yeah, we need to decolonize what we're doing when it comes to dramaturgy, when it comes to, you know, um, playwriting techniques, all these things, everything is there. Everything is there. And I just feel like, yeah, that, that, that moment will stick with me as long as I live. Like actually what you think you know is actually what you should be teaching. And actually those challenges help you grow. It helps to practice grow. It helps theater evolve and it's needed. And actually those conversations excite me because I'm like, oh, I don't know something. I need to go back and read. Like I need to challenge myself and go and do the work. It's good. It's a good process. It so is. And I think there's something in that 
as well of like in years gone by and people that don't want to le- continue to learn because there's almost that and I am going to say what it is is that patriarchal well I know it I've done it I know it um, well no because we're continually evolving we all evolve our language evolves hopefully our society evolves <laughs> um you know and so we need to reflect that in the art that we create and the conversations that we have so I just I really love that you brought that up and um, just as well because you're talking about your pl- playwriting and you know things that you've used I'd love to know your process and um, before we start talking about blueprints okay so huh. I realize, I know this is going to sound so controversial, procrastination is part of my process. I said it, I said it with my <laughs> because I, I wish so- Louise wasn't away <laughs> because she would just be like, oh my God, thank you. Because Louise, I mean, Lou, I'm sorry, you're not here. I'm kind of half throwing you under the bus, but not really. Because um, she does the same, she'll procrastinate and she's like, oh shit, I've got a deadline. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly what it is. And I feel like, Okay, so I also think that uh, whilst I'm not being diagnosed, but I also think I do have ADHD. So that's something I've always kind of thought in the back of my mind. It's how my brain kind of works in terms of expanding on really large ideas and then having to condense it down. That's always been part of my process. But part of that is that we will procrastinate until the last minute. But actually, in that time, you're gathering ideas, you're listening to podcasts, you're watching films and you're watching the dynamics between the characters, you're listening to conversations on the bus, on the train, on the tube, you're taking all this information in and then you bleed it all out on the page. And I was like, oh, this is what I've been doing for years and it's how I work and I'm not ashamed of it anymore. This is my practice. It's what I do. Um, But also as well, what I will say is in my head, it's usually a vision and it's like, maybe like a comic book kind of strip. Then it turns into poetry. That's usually the first line of defense when it comes to writing. And then it turns into dialogue and like script. That's usually how things work. So example with Blueprints, it started as a collection of poems and then it led into kind of experimenting with some of them in the rehearsal room and devising. And that's what led to the dialogue and the script. But that's usually my process because I'm a poet first and I think in verse as well quite easily. Um, And then that's what bleeds out. And usually when I'm in that mode as well, there'll be a lot of heavily lyricist rap being played and like listening to, yeah, all different types of genres. But I think rap, MF Doom, all those kind of people, I'm like heavily involved because I think that is what helps me focus in terms of poetry. Then, yeah, it's cheesy shows on Netflix as well. I can't lie. That also helps because, you know, then you see what doesn't work. Do you know what I mean? And you're like, OK, that line, <laughs> two on the nose. And actually it all kind of then merges out and kind of um, as I balances out. And I think that to me is my process. It's a mixture of consuming content, then kind of letting it bubble, letting it rest, dramaturgically analysing why I've consumed that content and then bleeding it out. And that's the process for me. Oh my gosh, I've never said that out loud before, but that made sense. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's, I was going to ask you as well, if your poetry leads into it and you kind of mentioned there as well. Um, I mean, as a performer, the thought of like getting handed some poetry and we're in a devising room makes me go, oh, yay. That makes me like, oh, happy and tingly inside because I I love all of that. and that and just in itself, like, have you ever found you've been in certain rooms where some performers are like, oh, no, I don't do this? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I have, actually. Um, the first <laughs> the first iteration of Blueprint. I love how straight you were on that. You were like, yes, I have. <laughs> yeah, a thousand percent. And actually, totally direct. 
And I do think it's interesting because I do think some actors are really good at devising. Some actors are really comfortable in the kind of improvised state of like, you know, we've got a poem, let's just play around with what the, the content could be. Some actors really are not for that. And actually, and that's not, it's not a critique. I think it's just choosing the right actors for the room. And I think on the second iteration of Blueprints, we definitely saw that um, play out. And actually, I think this version to me I think has definitely kind of married the two from the first version of the playfulness in the rehearsal room and then now it being shaped with almost four years of life and and poetry and just different types of content and also inspiration as well I think this is the version to me that feels the most true to what the storyline was supposed to be in the beginning um but once again that is also based on the actors as well and just how amazing Martin and Aisha are when it comes to taking a bit of poetry bringing it to life and it's just it's been amazing just working with them both and also Jack as well the director it's been brilliant I love it when you have a great rehearsal um process it's just like joyful sometimes I'm like even if things don't quite work and you know the show as a whole isn't quite what you thought if you have that kind of rehearsal it doesn't matter yeah, a thousand percent. And everyone down, like I said, the actors, um, Stacey, who is our stage manager, literally like everyone in the rehearsal room has just been a godsend. And I couldn't have done it without them. Maddie, who is our um, a dramaturg, everyone has just added so much gold into the rehearsal period. And I actually miss it quite a lot. <laughs> Not being able to see them every day. Like it was, mm. just, it was, it was like building a small family. It was brilliant. Yeah. Um, oh, you've got so, post-show blues already and the show's yeah. not done yet. <laughs> we have one more like rehearsal date before Edinburgh and I'm looking forward to it so much. Like it's going to be a, just a blessing. So I'm just looking forward to it. It's going to be good. <laughs> so let's tell uh, the listeners about Blueprints, Ashley. Blueprints. Uh, cool. So Blueprints is about, or it's an Afro-futuristic love story about two characters called Adam and Faith who... Yeah, they're madly in love, they're in their late 20s, and they stumble across this program called The Blueprints, which basically can tell you everything about what you've ever inherited from the start of your bloodline, but also can allow you to remove negative traits from your bloodline forever. So you can delete them, get rid of them, and you won't then repeat it, and the next generation won't repeat it either, so it's gone. Um, However, because (laughs) it is drama, there's got to be some kind of conflict, and unfortunately, there is a a divide in terms of what they believe is the right inheritance and actually one of them inherits something that is really personal to them and really kind of connects with their ancestry and their culture and their race and actually that then conflicts with somebody else's beliefs about you know religion and actually all the kind of colonial histories that we've got of black people actually if you then inherit something that is seen as freeing that will then start to jar about what you've been practicing for all of these years um And I say that as a Christian, I have this internal battle all the time, which is I want to connect deeper with my blackness and my ancestry and, you know, looking into Caribbean roots and looking into the spiritualities. But also my Christian faith says, don't do that. And I'm like, oh, okay. well, how do we balance the two? Um, So it's it's (laughs) it's always about it's always an ongoing conversation that I'm having in my head, but also with other Christians as well who are black and also Caribbean as well. Um, 
so yeah, that was how it was born, really. Um, but actually, the backstory of it was <laughs> I was on a date with my partner, and I remember looking at him going, This is amazing. I am hearing all these things about your political views and your religious views, amazing. Uh, but I don't know enough about you because actually, we're merging identity. If we were to get married one day, if we were to have kids one day, I need to know exactly what I'm going to be passing down to the next generation. I don't want to create another you know um, generation that don't necessarily challenge things or uh, are comfortable in cycles that don't serve them and that's when the whole idea of blueprints came up if I could see everything you've inherited if I could really tangibly just take out bits that don't serve me or take out um, traits for example my partner now has type 1 diabetes if I could take that out that means that my child probably wouldn't be susceptible to it but obviously I can't do that you know who knows AI is advancing like lightning speed so who knows what could happen <laughs> in the next couple of years but that's how it all so sort of started and then yeah that led to a collection of poems that led to us playing around in the rehearsal room in 2019 and then that led to the first iteration at the Birmingham Rep and then yeah but then we got Arts Council funding through Recreate through Emily Beecher uh, for Reese McMahon and yeah that's when we got to really play around with what Blueprints is as a program how it's really affecting these two characters lives and actually as well, if it was a black story, because at one point I was like, I don't know if I want it to be, I want it to speak to everyone. But actually, I think sometimes when you then go too big and too out, actually excludes everyone. And actually you should hone in on a story that's true to you. And then actually then it will speak to who it needs to speak to. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, so yeah, that's been the process of writing, well, kind of uh, making blueprints and kind of, you know, giving birth to the idea of it and just also what it's about. Um, I mean, the question is, would you take the blueprints? I personally still would. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I would. I, I am fascinated with ancestry and I would love to delete certain things that I think mm. have passed down to me. And it's no fault of anyone. I think something that I've learned now in my late 20s is my parents were my parents and <laughs> they were you know 30s and not much older than what I am now when they had me and actually people make mistakes people you know do things that they thought was right at the time but at the same time that doesn't mean it doesn't have an impact and actually I would like to just tweak a few things just a few little sniggly things um but yeah that's the question I've been asking a lot of people and I think after the run in London there were so many questions like okay cool well if I could then know if my partner had been domestically violent to someone in the past and they hadn't told me boom it's in the test if I could find out that this person would potentially cheat on me in the future boom it's in the test you now know everything but should you know I don't know <laughs> wow that's uh, I mean it's so fascinating uh the whole idea about your inherited stuff uh whether it's in that learned behavior because everybody's a product of what they've seen and etc and and just also that thing that you've said like your parents are your parents but they're also human beings um, and I think we all hold not even just our parents, but just each other sometimes too much to a high standard, and that people's mistakes or if you want to quote unquote failures um are seen as something hugely negative, and obviously in some cases they are, but they're also just really just the flaws of being a human, yeah, a thousand percent, and I think it's so interesting what you said about actually. Like I see it more with the black community and the South Asian community than I do with others. But 
the way that we revere our elders is beautiful because at the end of the day, they have so much wisdom, they have so much knowledge and they've lived life. You know, we should definitely listen to them. But also I think it is, it, it's really hard to critique them, exceptionally hard because you have such uh, respect for them and because you don't want to seen as seen as rude, you don't want to seen as challenging the, the status quo. But actually that's how things then get passed down. It's how sometimes shame gets passed down and actually being able to kind of interrogate those things and say, oh, actually, why are we still practicing this? Why are we still holding these beliefs? Because it mm-hmm. may have served you in, you know, past five, six decades ago, but we're not there anymore. And mm-hmm. actually you know, a lot of the problems in this country has been given birth to not challenging status quo, not challenging culture and tradition. And actually we need to. And I know that is very countercultural as British people because we are very keep calm and carry on. But actually we're no longer there. <laughs> yeah. It has changed us. Um, government has changed us. Everything's <laughs> changed us. And actually, yes, blueprints is on like, a, you know, a genetic level and technically in the test. But once again, expands outwards. And actually, I think we'd be so much better as a society if we just said, wait, let's stop a second. How is this going to impact the next generation? Because they're the ones that are going to be here longer than we are. And actually, we don't do that enough. And I think that would be, that would be such a beautiful UK if we could be there. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it just be lovely? (laughs) I think that's something, isn't it, as well, though, there's like a you know, in, in a society, we are almost molded to be really selfish in the moment for ourselves and not think about how it further. Because let's be honest, if we had been, um, we wouldn't have voted for Brexit. I say we. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the 62% of Scots that didn't vote for it. So, But you know what was quite interesting about that was... I know quite a lot of black people that voted for Brexit. And I found it shocking because part of me was like, well, you're not even two generation removed from the Windrush generation. Your, your family, literally, you are second generation. How could you do this? But actually there was a lot of first generations that voted to leave. And then you then think, why would you do that? And then you look at, and obviously I can't necessarily generalize because everyone's got their own experiences, but just the ones that I particularly know. And it was, well, they want to seem like they are British. So once again, mm. letting go of your culture that you have brought to this country that you inherited for mm-hmm. a new one. And I'm wondering if that was worth the sacrifice. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Because actually, I don't know if you're ever going to receive this recognition that you're looking for. Yeah. Um, and actually, once again, what have you let go in the process? And now what is your kids going to learn as a consequence of that? Yeah. Not quite sure. I don't know. But that assimilation and then like... Wow, I don't, I'm, <laughs> my brain's going off in so many different um, thoughts. So I'm now trying to like kind of get myself back into where uh, I think. I think what's really lovely about this, um, Ashley, is that you've taken it in that most um, simple way, and I mean that in the best possible way of it being a love story to start with. Because uh, hopefully everybody will fall in love at some point in their life. Um, so everybody will start from that point so like you were saying about you know you didn't want to you didn't know if you wanted to make it a black story but it's like everyone can recognize that it's like you know we have certain things in our in our lives all of us as human beings love grief loss that connect us um but then everything else comes around about it and that's I think what will be really beautiful and I hope the audiences of Edinburgh will find that, is that because you've started at this beautiful point, 
but everything else will then hopefully start to challenge them and make them think in different ways about how maybe they have been part of cycles that haven't challenged where we are now. Yeah, a thousand percent. And literally, it, <laughs> it was so interesting hearing the conversations at the bar because it was, oh yeah, I had a partner that was like that. And actually we didn't last long. And everyone was going back into some nostalgic <laughs> love story from their early twenties. And I was like, oh my God, this is really interesting. But also just to see now what they won't put up with because of those experiences. Do you know what I mean? It was like, that was their blueprints. Do you know what I mean? They saw what they needed to see. And it obviously came out in, you know, toxic ways that, you know, ended their relationships. But it was very fascinating that obviously once again, love just kind of grounds you. And then you, and it's interesting because, my pastor keeps talking about this quite a lot and we're currently doing a series about marriage at church at the moment and he keeps saying love is not enough he's like it's not enough loyalty you need this you need commitment you need whatever but also that's true because yes you will get to put you do love that's amazing but actually there's all these other things that are in between and actually I suppose that is the challenge of the play is love enough you see these characters fall in love with each other in the beginning you see them really connect on a deep spiritual level and it's also just beautiful to see uh, like a black love story. Like it's it's not really that, you know, well promoted on like UK stages as such. Representation matters, representation it, matters, people. It does, absolutely. And you see this and then you see the weight of what society does to black love. And then you're like, oh my God, but is it enough? Are they going to stay together after everything they've been through? Should they stay together? It's a question. And I, I, I genuinely, I'm still like undecided because I love these characters I can't lie they are they are amazing <laughs> I love them but at the same time I don't know if love is enough for them and that is something that is the question that people come out with after watching blueprints just saying hmm, could should- you talk more on the um, how society treats black love because I think that's really important for the listeners yeah I think in terms- if you're comfortable yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of seeing black relationships that are fruitful that especially I think America did a good job of this in the early noughties. So you'd have things like My Wife and Kids. You'd have things like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So you'd see love stories, but it was never in a Black British context. And actually, then you then have this narrative, which I'm not quite sure if it's true. I can only go from my experiences. I've never seen the statistics based on this. But there was definitely this narrative of, oh, if you were younger and you were a Black person in schools or whatever, you probably would be from a single parent background. The dad wouldn't be around. I don't know, once again, if this is true, because a lot of my friends, their parents are together. That's fine. Um, I wasn't one of them. But once again, you know, it just depends on where you were. Um, But actually, to then now be in a space where you're seeing shows or like films like Rye Lane and you're seeing like love stories and not even just like heteronormative love stories, I'm talking about queer love stories as well. Like it just wasn't there. And actually to be able to provide something like that was beautiful. And actually to hear the responses from people who were in the audience that were like, I have never seen a black love story on on stage. How are we in 2022 and we've never seen that? Because actually what happens is and I hope I'm not shooting myself in the foot, but I'm going to say it. I don't think a lot of theatres want to see Black love stories on the stage or else they would commission it. Actually, for a long time, the industry has profited quite well off Black pain, off Black trauma, off, you know, looking at slavery, which we are tired of talking about. I'll speak for the whole Black community on that point. <laughs> we are so tired. Like, And it's not to say it's not important, but we have current stories that are based off 
happier experiences. And actually, if they read the room, they would realize that black people want to talk about joy. They want to experience like euphoria, watching things on stage and really getting goosebumps when you're seeing characters have that kind of, you know, starting point in a relationship where it's kind of flirty, but also not. And it's kind of awkward. And that's the beauty of it. And it's like, we don't get the grace to have that on stage. We don't get the grace to see that on screen. And I think, you know, to be able to provide some kind of crumb of that has been a privilege. It's been a blessing. And I just hope that it inspires other people to also do the same as well. It's beautiful. And it's so important. And I don't think you're shooting yourself in the foot um, because it's what needs to be said. We need to challenge it. And uh, because you've said that, I'm starting to think about various different shows that I've seen. There's maybe one or two in Scotland that I can think of that have happened in the last few years. But prior to that, I'm struggling. <laughs> That's it. That's so, um, and if I'm struggling and I'm someone who's in the industry and I've been kicking around for a while, uh, that's that's what we need to start to look at. Um, I think it's also really interesting what you said about profiting off of pain. And I think that our industry as a whole needs to take responsibility for that and accountability. And also there is a thing as a white person, do the fucking work yourself. So, yeah. <laughs> no, I completely agree. And I think once again, it just, and I think we are in an interesting point at the moment because I think now we are post pandemic what I see the trend is in theatres is they're looking for comedy at the moment. Comedy and also existing shows, which is driving me insane because there's so much new writing that's not getting programmed. But I also think because there's now a space for comedy, it's like, okay, cool. Well, who is allowed to be funny? Who is allowed to be in that space of joy and, and you know, like I said, a euphoric experience. You come out and you're like, oh, that was so... I felt catharsis just watching these characters fall in love and then fall out of love and fall back in love again. Where do we get the, the chance to do that? Also, as well as women, do we get the chance to do that? It's things like this. And this is why, even though, like, you know, I'm very new to musicals, seeing things like Six is a joy because it's like, ah, oh, this is... <laughs> I love Six. So refreshing. It's brilliant. Do you know what I mean? It's so refreshing to see six female characters on stage that are like, actually no, we're not taking this patriarchal view on our lives anymore. This is what we were doing and we're happy with it. Boom. Like, that's beautiful. I absolutely love that. And I think that's the the challenge now in the industry is actually who can be funny and who has the right to write comedy and to to be commissioned to write comedy. And I think that is going to be an interesting one moving forward. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. So, well... Three very interesting points. Uh, uh, because the not having new writing, and listen, we know that this industry also works on money and we know that the producers are looking at it going, okay, what do we need to sell to rake some money in after the pandemic? We get it, right? However, there are people are desperate for new stuff because everything else is tied up in before the pandemic and during the pandemic. So we want that new, fresh oh we're starting we're starting again yeah um I mean I was at a scratch night in Glasgow and it was sold out and it was joy I was like it was joy sold out scratch night four new shows joy thank you very much more (laughs) of that please more of that please um 
I want to just ask you what you hope people will take away from Blueprints and then we'll mention the dates that it's on. And then I have a couple more questions and then I promise we're done. Okay. <laughs> um, what I hope audits will take away from Blueprints, I hope that they A, come away with some level of awakening. And I mean that questioning something about their life. I don't want you to come out and feel Okay, whilst I don't want you to come out and feel deeply uncomfortable and feel like, oh my God, I need to go into therapy and trauma. I don't want that. But I do want you to start thinking, oh, actually, I didn't realise that I practised that because my mom did. I didn't realise that actually I speak in this way because my granddad taught me how to speak in certain settings. Question things a little bit. But also as well, those who are in relationships, I want you to actually really think about actually what are you passing on to your partner by being with them? What have you already inherited by just being in proximity with them? I want you to start thinking about that. And also for single people, and I, I'm speaking to a lot of people that I know of that are currently trying to find relationships and I'm hearing their criteria and what they want. And I'm thinking, wow, actually, and I'm talking about this from someone who's now in a relationship myself, relationships take sacrifice. They take that kind of space of giving and taking and kind of compromising what you kind of thought were really core values to yourself. And if you're okay with that, then please pursue it. If you're not okay with it, then it's okay to be single. It's okay not to be in that space because actually when you are in a relationship, you are merging identity. And then you have to take on what their parents have passed on to them. And then what their, you know, everybody else in their friendship circles passed on, their work environment, whatever they're kind of politically consuming, that's then going to be a part of you. You can't avoid it. So actually, if you're not ready to do that, that's fine. Be a rich auntie, go and live your best life. I am happy for you. Don't compromise your values just to fit into this, this mold if it doesn't suit you. And actually build on your own identity and when you're ready to then merge then do so but don't do it just because society is telling you to and that to me is something I would like people to start questioning as they come out but also as well I think specifically for my black community I would like them to start thinking about things that they I would like to start thinking about histories that we haven't tapped into yet as in things that we don't know about our ancestry but also to reimagine what the future could be for black people based on this because this is one version of blueprints there could be a version where it's like actually if you take this test we can now reimagine your future who knows and i want you to start thinking about what that could look like that's the whole point of afrofuturism it's reimagining black lives it's reimagining us with joy with excellence and actually what does that look like for us moving forward after 2023 in 2020 2030 like what is that going to be for us and I think that would be an amazing experience if they were to do that oh amazing Ashley <laughs> I love it I love it um now you're only on for half the festival that's right isn't it yeah. yes so we are there from the 17th to the 28th but we're not on the 21st of August I'm afraid <laughs> um I'm gonna be day off that's allowed it's exhausting <laughs> um so yeah I will be around until the 21st if anyone wants to say hi I'll be hovering around um but it is literally just an hour show it's 11 50 a.m at the Pleasant's Courtyard in the Beneath so we'll be there I'll be around with a hot chocolate maybe a slushy um actually come up and talk to me I'm very approachable but yeah it's gonna be on and we're looking forward to it and I've never been to Edinburgh before so I am just absolutely buzzing to just... that was my next question for you have you done the festival before never done the festival I've never even done the city so I am buzzing I am oh. looking forward to it I just have so many plans um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's gonna be good 
I mean, it's an amazing time to see the city. I mean, Edinburgh is beautiful. Um, I'll say be prepared for all weathers. Oh, okay. That's good. Edinburgh, because it's on the East Coast as well, can be a bit windy. Nice. Okay. So always have a jumper, definitely a raincoat and a brolly. In August? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Listen, our country is beautiful and lush and like full of the most amazing greenery. And part of the reason for that is it pisses down all the time. So. <laughs> that is brilliant. <laughs> it will probably be like that really annoying kind of like 21, 22. So a bit muggy, but you'll need a brolly. <laughs> so you need a fan, you need a brolly, you need a rain jacket. You definitely need shorts because there will be a day where it will just randomly be like 28 degrees. Um, and uh, as Louise pointed out the other week, you, comfy shoes because Edinburgh is full of cobbled streets. Oh, this is brilliant techniques. I should have took notes. This is good. <laughs> it's okay. You get to listen back. So it's fine. <laughs> just take a wee pause. Like, oh, here's the list of things that we have to do. That but is brilliant. You see, <clears throat> you'll get to see some amazing stuff as well while you're up, which will be really incredible. I cannot wait. And I know some people that have already booked in like 170 shows. I'm like, how is that even possible? People, yeah. I don't know how those people do that. Just, I, I'm fascinated because I think. With I, love I, and I, respect I, to them, <laughs> just to me, it's like, that's too much much um you will be well no you're lovely because you've got the like second half of it which is always really lovely um so you'll not be completely exhausted by the end of it so it'll be really it'll be good it's actually nice to do a kind of two week I think of the festival um and great that you're doing it halfway through because everybody's there by then <laughs> this is it this is it this is, this is the thing um I think the other thing that I kind of wanted to ask you like you talked obviously about this being based on a collection of poetry. Um, and is there any one poem for you that you um, had within that collection that really kind of sticks out? Um, and is any of that poetry available for people to purchase? It is not available. I can definitely say that. However, I would love off the back of this to end up I don't know with an agent that would be good if anyone's listening but also as well to be able to publish a collection of poetry one day I've never done it and I would love to um but one standout poem that I can think of <laughs> uh once again sometimes working with young people it makes you a little bit kooky uh so there was one poem that was actually based um from the perspective of the house um that these people were living in and it was a house that was speaking in Patwa and it was basically talking about all the things that it's seen all the the food that was cooked in the house and actually um, what's going to happen when these people move out and actually what will they inherit as in the house will inherit when new people come in and that was basically yeah I think his name what was it Delroy Delroy the house that was it. <laughs> and that was really fun to write just to kind of you know start to think about once again because I know a lot of like Caribbean people as well when it comes to houses and buying new houses we bless the house in order to kind of like reset the balance of the energy and whatnot and actually that was just something that I was just very mindful of actually like oh actually this house that we live in at the moment like it's been here for the past 50 years so many things have happened I wonder if it could speak what it would say and that was what the poem was based on 
I love that so much. Like I want to, I want to hear it. Like I want to hear the poem. I mean, I won't make you do it. <laughs> like I want to hear the poem because it's that thing. I think that you're talking about that. I, that we don't even kind of notice all the things that start to embed in ourselves. Yeah. And our homes do that. Yep. Like whether we realize it or not and how it's happening. Um, And I think as well for me, the other thing was that kind of ancestral thing that you talked about and and women in particular. And there's a real, you know, you've got, she says, as she's got her crystals in her bra, as everybody (laughs) knows. Uh, But, you know, like there is that kind of new age thing where we, you know, we talk about that. But I do think there is something in particular inherited in our ancestral cycles as women. Um, And I just wanted to know if you had anything kind of on that. Oh, can I have a little bit more of an um, elaboration on that point? Just like- yeah, just that kind of thing of like what that does to us as women, that all of that ancestral stuff. As in what it does to us when we inherit those things. When and- we inherit those things and how we then have to move forward. Oh my God, this is so interesting. I think, oh, okay, I could speak on this for days. Literally just because I've been consuming a lot of content about like women's health at the moment. And well, about- yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so big because there's just so many things that I didn't know about actually in terms of like menstrual health, in terms of like reproductive, all these things. But like, even for example, um, just because there's been a massive rise in women with PCOS at the moment. And I was listening to a podcast and it was talking about there was this community in Russia, I think it was. And there was an attack on the village and they basically did a study about who uh, and the amount of women that had PCOS based off um, like after the trauma of the attack. And I'm then thinking about all of these things that women inherit in the society, the pressures of being a woman, the pressures of having to conform to a patriarchal society. How does that then affect our, our, our reproductive health? How does that then affect you when it comes to, you know, accessing um, medical health through the NHS? And once again, I love the NHS. It's brilliant. But boy, they're under so much pressure. So they can't do the job that they want to do to the best of their you know capacity, all of those things. But then also as well, to then have the, the pressure of giving birth to the next generation. And then it's because, you know, we are now seen as the, the caregivers, which once again, I can't believe in 2023, we're still seen as the primary caregivers at home. All of those pressures and those inheritances and the cultural traditions I don't know how we are doing it as women. I look at some of the, the people I know who are moms at the moment. I just, I have so much reverence and I'm in awe of them just because of how amazing they are. But also they're battling so many things. They're trying to work. They're trying to make sure that their partners are, you know, taken care of. They're pr- trying to make sure that they're upholding cultural traditions. I, it's just insane. Whilst also trying to keep themselves alive and fed and watered and to meditate and to just be so many things <laughs> so I could go on for ages um but once again I do think especially when it comes to the physical health I think that inheritance in itself as in what our inheritance can do to our bodies I think that could be another another play <laughs> if you want to collaborate just put it out there because that that sounds like uh hmm sounds like a commission there <laughs> yeah I think that's definitely a commission and uh somebody uh, contact Ashley right now about that because <laughs> um, I do think it's so fascinating like that whole idea in particular as you talk about about women's health and and we have to then look at um, where you sit if you're a white woman and a black woman where that sits for you and how you are treated when it comes to your physical and m- mental well-being um, and in particular 
we know that across the board, women aren't as um, believed as they should be um, when they have uh, the when they go to people to speak about things. But we know that black women are not believed even more so than white women. And we really need to um, redress that. But it's that thing that we're taking on board. So then do we as women just the thing of, well, I've seen it and it's a pattern and it's been passed down to me. I know I'm not going to get an answer. So I just push right through. You know, actually, I think it's more of a case of realising our power, because what I've seen as a result of, for example, I think it's black women are four times more likely to die in childbirth um, because of like medical negligence and stuff like that. But now I'm seeing a rise of black doulas that have started to pop up. Mm. And I'm like, oh, okay, And more women who are talking about like mental health, um, reproductive well-being and things like that as well. They're all starting to practice these things holistically outside of our NHS. And I do find that quite interesting that it's like, even though you can rely on the NHS and they'll still provide a decent service. Actually, we need to do a job of ourselves to take care of us as a community. And I think that is beautiful because actually it's them relying on things like ancestry. It's looking at the older remedies of dealing with things like cysts or um, people who have fibroids and things like that. It's all of these old school remedies that are now popping back up again. And it's actually really beautiful to see it. I'm seeing conferences of women that are like meeting in fields and talking about all these herbal remedies. And actually, to be fair, if I could one day, I would love to be a herbalist just because my nan was quite good when it came to like herbal remedies her mother was quite good at it and actually it's something that when I went to Jamaica I really wanted to reconnect with again just based on how much we we use the land in the West Indies we use it there and it, it heals us and actually to be able to then pass that down to a generation that is so heavily reliant on medication and actually kind of relying on the NHS I think that would be amazing I think it'd be like a big full circle moment personally. I mean, that's beautiful. And also like taking that moment of the, the ancestry part of it is a positive thing. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think sometimes we get so caught up in it being a negative and how we're perpetuating situations. But actually there's, you can find the strands of it that are absolutely beautiful and really vital um, so, and powerful, like you said. And I love it. Bring the power, bring the power. Yes, yes, yes. And um, before we finish up, one last question for you, Ashley. Um, so uh, we are called Persistent and Nasty <laughs> um, because when we started Me Too, a couple of political things happening, how we, how we as women, there's words used against us all the time. Yeah. Bossy, you know, moany, uh, Whereas, you know, men are called driven um, and ambitious. <laughs> um, so it's about kind of reclaiming those words. Um, so, yeah. So, Ashley, what does the phrase persistent and nasty mean to you? Oh, oh, gosh, what a question. That is a brilliant question. Um, persistent and nasty means to be consistent in your development as a woman and to when I say nasty I mean not to take anyone's foolishness you are a woman you are who you are you're developing in your own way and whoever doesn't like it can kick rocks that to me is what persistent nasty means <laughs> I say it with my full chest <laughs> I love it I love it Ashley Elizabeth Lolo thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for everyone heading to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe um, all of the details for blueprints are in today's show notes um, Ashley, thanks so much. I could talk to you for hours. Same. <laughs> and uh, I will definitely be coming along to see the show. So I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um, 
But until next time, lovely listeners, stay nasty. Stay nasty. <laughs>